Okay, it's good to see everybody. God bless you guys. Can I have you turn with me to the book of Jude? You all know what chapter? <laughs> now we have uh, begun a study in the epistle of Jude, who along with James, the one who wrote the book of James, they were both half-brothers of Jesus, although they never mentioned that. We get that from church tradition, but uh, they never mentioned that we are Jesus' half-brothers. They didn't want to um, make it seem like they had a closer relationship with the Lord than anyone else. And uh, But as we said last time we met, and we just did a kind of an introductory message last time, but as we said last time, from the very beginning of the church's existence, it's always been understood that Christians were soldiers fighting in a battle. Paul the Apostle in 2 Timothy chapter 2 reminded Timothy, a, a young pastor, that we must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Of course, earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he exhorted all of us who are followers or actually soldiers of Jesus Christ to fight the good fight of faith. As we said, the Greek is a command. And it's in the present tense, which means it's an ongoing thing. Therefore, what Paul is saying is, I command you to keep continually, constantly fighting the good fight of faith every day. This is the theme of Jude's epistle. That Christians, verse 3, earnestly contend for the faith. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 6, verse 12. He said, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of, of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Now I read that because we have to understand that first and foremost, we are in a war. It's a spiritual battle. We aren't really fighting with people. Uh, we think sometimes that, you know, unbelievers, especially those that oppose Christianity, you know, those in the liquor industry, gaming industry, pornographic industry, Hollywood, and so on, these are our enemies. No, Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, these people have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. They are not our enemies. We need to be humble, gentle, patient, able to teach with humility that God perhaps would grant them repentance and they would escape the snare of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So it's clear, guys, that we are fighting a fight, a battle, that's true, as Christians, but it's a spiritual war against the devil and his demons. And we, as we have said before, it really is a battle for God's truth against Satan's lies. You can check out 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 to 5. Uh, pretty much all of John 8 uh, deals with this, but... Um, I want you to keep that in your mind because as we come to Jude's epistle, uh, understand that he's really admonishing us in the same way as Paul did, Peter, the Lord Jesus, admonishing us as the people of God to fight against Satan's lies as good soldiers of Jesus Christ. Now, the first two verses are Jude's opening salutation. And he opens up by saying, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, as we said last time, since most of what follows 
is about fighting against apostates. I'd like to spend our time this evening, this evening looking at Jude's opening salutation about believers. I mean, the whole epistle, for the most part, is all about, you know, uh, apostasy and apostates. And, you know, and uh, that's important that we understand that. But uh, indulge me to spend tonight at least focusing on what he says in a very simple way about believers in Christ. Those that he calls the called. Remember, see it here? To those who are the called. In verse 1, turn to Romans 8. We're going to camp there just for a little bit. But um, when Jude talks about those who are called, well, it reminds us of what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Now, guys, this is where eternity, God's foreknowledge and predestination if you want to know more about those two concepts, uh, those two doctrines, uh, get our study from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Because we really focused on that. And if you're interested, go online. You can look at the, listen to that. But just for tonight, just so you understand, when, when Paul talks about those who have been foreknown, predestined, and then called, this is where eternity, God's foreknowledge and predestination, intersects with time, the time where we responded to our shepherd's call and received Jesus as our Savior, and the result was our justification, our justification. Verse 30, once again, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified. The biblical doctrine of justification is one of the most basic, fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. And yet, sadly, many, if not most Christians, would have a hard time defining it if asked to do so. My pastor used to say that justification meant just as if I never sinned, just as if I never sinned. And while that isn't a bad definition, it doesn't really get at the real meaning of biblical justification. The root of the word justification is the word just, just. The word we also get the word justice from. That then begins to shed light on what justification is. It's actually a legal term. A legal term where a defendant is declared not guilty of a crime or crimes by a judge in a court of law. When we apply the term to biblical justification, we realize that the justification the Bible talks about is not, listen, is not where man has been tried in God's court and found innocent of any you know, wrongdoing, any crimes against God's laws, uh, and therefore declared not guilty, justified, by him who was called in Genesis 18 the righteous judge of all the earth. We know the Bible is very clear that mankind is guilty. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one, Romans 3.10. We're all guilty, and therefore justice demands punishment for said crimes. And that punishment is uh, eternal punishment in hell. All mankind is guilty. People are harboring under a great delusion, 
foisted upon them by the enemy. And that is that they're basically good. I'm, basically, I'm, I'm a good person, you hear people say all the time. And they say that because they've judged their own particular goodness next to somebody else who is much worse than they are. And so because I can find somebody worse than me, by comparison, I'm good. I'm a good person. But no human being is the one we compare ourselves to. Uh, Jesus said to the Pharisees, you do err, and that you judge yourselves by yourselves to determine your righteousness. You err. This is a big problem. You have to stand next to the Lord Jesus Christ to determine how good you are. And I'll just make it easy. Jesus said there is none good. Not any. There's only one who is good. That's God. Because in the Bible, goodness is defined as moral perfection. Moral perfection. And so the Bible is very clear that all mankind is guilty of crimes against the holy God, and therefore justice demands punishment for those crimes, which is eternal punishment in hell. However, due to the mercy of God, he allowed a substitute, the sinless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. God allowed a substitute to die on Calvary's cross in our place. The innocent dying for the guilty, and God applied Jesus' blood as payment for our sins, our crimes. And based on what Jesus did, and listen, based on only what Jesus did, God declares those who receive Jesus as their Savior justified. One theologian put it this way, said, and I quote, It is a legal declaration in which God pardons the sinner of all his sins and accepts and accounts the sinner as righteous in his sight. God declares the sinner righteous at the very moment that the sinner puts his trust in Jesus Christ. We are not justified by our own works. We are justified solely on the basis of Christ's work on our behalf. This righteousness is imputed to the sinner. In other words, in justification, God puts the righteousness of his son onto the sinner's account. End quote. Turn to Romans 5. Of course, I'm also thinking about, I think, 2 Corinthians 5.17 God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, that we might be the righteousness of God in him or through him. But Romans 5, verses 18 and 19, Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, Adam blew it for all of us, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men. Salvation is a free gift purchased by Jesus resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. So at the moment we believed in Jesus, guys, we received and we received him as our Savior, God declared us justified, which meant that we at that moment were saved. We're saved. In other words, at the moment we received Jesus as our Savior, we were saved from any future punishment in hell, the lake of fire, and we pass from death to life from, listen, from condemned, or in other words, guilty sinner, to justified, or in other words, pardoned child of God. We have gained more through Adam's sin than we ever would have if he hadn't sinned. I mean, when, when Adam sinned, he blew it for all of us. We were all guilty sinners, separated from God for all eternity. But God so loved us, he gave his only begotten son to die for us. And whenever, when, we, when we receive Christ, not only did he forgive us and wash us of our sin, he adopted us. 
So now we are heirs of God, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Uh, it's amazing, though, what the devil intended for evil, God used for the greatest good of all. But whereas Paul in Romans 8 said we were called and justified, Jude said, and I'm reading out of the New King James, Jude said we were called and sanctified. Now, theologically, justification and sanctification are not the same thing. But both terms do describe something that happened to us the moment we received Jesus Christ as our Savior. You see, the moment we were saved, justified, we were taken by the Holy Spirit away from the world. Now, this didn't happen visibly, literally. It, ha it did happen literally, but not visibly, physically. We were taken out of the world by the Holy Spirit. We're still in this world, but we're no longer a part of this world. Something spiritual, something invisible happened. The moment we received Christ, the Holy Spirit took us out of the world and placed us into the body of Christ, which meant at that moment we were sanctified. Sanctified. The word sanctified means to be set apart. Set apart. And that describes what happened to us the moment we were saved. We were set apart from the world unto God as his church. Living in the world still as a light, but no longer of the world which is darkness. That's what some call positional sanctification. Positional sanctification. Our Christian life has a positional and a practical side to it. Two sides. When we received Christ, we were set apart. Invisibly, supernaturally, spiritually, God took us out of the world, placed us in the body of Christ. We're still in the world, but we're no longer of the world. All right? Now, of course, positional sanctification started the process of practical sanctification. It wasn't until we got saved, in other words, taken out of the world, placed into the body of Christ, that the Holy Spirit moved in then, and that began this process that Paul talked about in 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, that we are being transformed every day by the Spirit of God more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. That's what's called practical everyday sanctification, being set apart more and more practically from the world. You know, we have been set apart spiritually from the world. We are in Christ now, but we're still living in this body. We're still in this world physically. And so the idea is that now we have to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what coming to church is all about, fellowshipping with the saints, staying in the Word, getting close to the Lord through prayer and whatever else. The more we draw close to Him, the more we become like Him. The Holy Spirit is able to then work more and more to transform us into the image of Christ, which is the ultimate sanctification. Jesus is the antithesis of the world. He's about as opposite of the world you could ever get, Right? The world is evil, the world is fallen, he is pure, righteous, holy. So he's the sanctification we're working towards. He's in us through the Spirit, but of course he won't just take over and force us. We have to submit to the process every day where we are made more and more like him. Very important. Back in Romans chapter 8, we read verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called... Whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, listen, these he also glorified. In between the believer's justification and ultimate glorification, there is the preservation of the believers. 
verse 1 of Jude's epistle. To those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Notice that Jude didn't say that the believer is preserved by Jesus Christ, but that the believer is preserved in Jesus Christ. Just like Noah and his family were preserved, or in other words, saved from judgment in the ark, right? In the ark? That ark is a type of Christ. I think it was Arthur W. Pink that came up with a hundred examples or a hundred ways the ark represented Christ. The ark is definitely a type of Jesus Christ. And if you study that story out of Genesis, when God had Noah and his family and all the animals get into the ark, it says very clearly that God shut the door. God locked the door. God sealed Noah and his family in the ark. The question is, could they have gotten out even if they had wanted to? I don't think so, but then again, why would they have wanted to? The fact that God sealed them in that ark didn't make Noah feel trapped and made him feel secure. I mean, because outside that ark was death. Judgment was upon the face of the whole earth, the flood. Outside that ark was certain death. Inside the ark was life. Just like in Christ there is life, and only in Christ. Outside of Christ there is nothing but judgment. And as a Christian, a real Christian, uh, we understand that. Why in the world would we ever want to get out of Christ, right? I don't think you could if you wanted to, but it's a moot point. You never would want to as a true child of God. That's how I, how I see it, okay? But this idea of being sealed in Christ. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Just bear with me tonight because this is something the devil uses nonstop to attack Christians and condemn them and to think, make them think that they have lost their salvation, that they have forfeited Christ, that they've been kicked out of the family, whatever, all in Satan's attempt to get you to to not believe what God has said so that he can attack you and condemn you and everything else. I mean, Jude, just in passing, gives us one of the greatest doctrines in the Christian life for walking in victory. Knowing you're saved and knowing you'll never not be saved. You'll never lose your salvation, is the idea. But Paul said in Ephesians 1, let's look at verses 13 and 14. In him, Christ, you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, in Christ also, having believed, you were sealed, and again the idea is in Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Listen, Paul said you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of of promise. God made us a promise, guys. He made us a promise that when we receive Jesus as our Savior, someday we would, not maybe, hopefully, someday we would, sure thing, absolutely, inherit a glorious future with Jesus in heaven. 1 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4, Peter mentions this. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead 
to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And so God made us this promise. I love it. That what he started on earth, our salvation, he would complete in heaven our glorification. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. I'm going to read this to you out of the ESV. So I think it comes through real clear in that uh, translation. Philippians 1 verse 6, Paul said, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the rapture. When the rapture happens, all the Christians who are alive are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Instantaneously, right? At that moment, we will receive our glorified bodies. So in other words, we will be completely now glorified. Well, you know, we, we, we are saved, but are, we're still living in this unredeemed body. Romans 8, Paul talks about it, okay? This body of death. What God started, though, in saving us, He is going to complete by glorifying us. And that happens at the rapture. Even if a person dies in Christ before the rapture, they are resurrected a microsecond before we are, who are alive and remain on the earth. We're all going to be caught up, harpazo, to be snatched away suddenly to meet the Lord in the air. And on the way up, and it's a quick trip, you're going to receive your glorified body. We will be made like him, for we will see him as he is. Back in Romans 8, verse 30, again, let me read this to you. Paul said, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Past tense, are you glorified yet? Have you been glorified? Has your body been glorified? No. But he put it in the past tense. Now, from what I understand... That was the way that you worded something when you wanted to communicate its absolute certainty. In fact, theologians call this section the golden chain of salvation. In other words, if God foreknew you, which he did, and he predestined you to eternal life, and at one point he called you and he justified you, he is going to glorify you. Nobody who is foreknown and, uh, and predestined and called and justified is not going to be glorified. It's a golden chain. It all hooks together. If you are saved, you are saved for eternity. You will be glorified. Turn to Titus chapter 1. I'm going to read verse 2. Titus is talking there, or excuse me, uh, Paul is talking there about the hope of eternal life which God, he said, who cannot lie, promised before what? Before when? Before time began. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised, there's that word again, promised before time began. Folks, this is what's called a unilateral, unconditional promise. A covenant is a promise, okay? This is what some have called the everlasting covenant, the new covenant, all right? Here's the idea. When people teach that our salvation is dependent on our obedience, on the fact that we must live a holy life. Now, I'm not saying we should. I'm not advocating for unholy living. 
I'm just making a point, okay? And that is that when, when teachers, pastors, teachers try to connect a person's salvation to their worthiness, to their holiness, all right? They are not understanding that the new covenant was a unilateral, one party, unilateral covenant, promise. In other words, to have two people who have to fulfill terms before something can be become a reality, like we'll say, uh, to get heaven, I have to, you know, Jesus died on the cross, and yet I have to live a certain kind of a life, and if I fulfill my part, God has fulfilled his part, then I get heaven. That's a bilateral, two-party covenant. That is not what the Bible teaches about the new covenant. And, and, and Titus, excuse me, Paul in Titus, puts his finger on this very thing. He said, God promised you and I eternal life when? Before time began. Were we there before time began? No. So who did he make this promise to? Himself. That he would give to us who believed on his son everlasting life apart from anything we would do to earn it or keep it. That is so important. It is not a bilateral two-party covenant salvation where I, I'm in there because I got news for you. If I'm in there in any way, shape, or form, forget about it. I'm not going to heaven because I am very unfaithful. But Jesus is the faithful one. He fulfilled the law. He lived a perfect life. He went to the cross dying for my sin. And when I put my faith in him, I am placed in Christ, the Holy One, the Righteous One, the Perfect One. And now I get to heaven, not because of what I do, but because of what Christ did. And God made that promise to himself before time began, before we were ever on the scene. God said, I'm going to make a covenant with myself that whoever believes in my son, not works, not you know, lighting candles or praying rosaries or whatever else, if they believe on my son, I promise I'm going to give them eternal life. And by its very definition, that's life for eternity. It can't be forfeited once it's given. So God's promise, guys, is sure. But to assure our hearts, because we're very squeamish, we're very, you know, we're always worried about everything. God made this promise to himself. He told us he made this promise to himself. But to assure our hearts, when we got saved, he sealed us with the Holy Spirit who became the guarantee of our inheritance. In other words, the presence of the Holy Spirit, guys, living inside of us became the guarantee. The Greek word means down payment. It's the word we, we get the idea of earnest money from. God gave us a down payment of the Holy Spirit to show that he was in earnest. When you uh, looking for a house, we'll say, you find one you like, you, uh, I want this house, you give them a down payment, right? That used to be called earnest money. You're in earnest. You're serious. God's serious about us. He, 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 he promised us that he was... What did Jesus say the night before he went to the cross, John 14? He said, I'm going away. And where I'm going, you can't follow me. Not yet. I'll come back for you. And take you to be with myself, that where I am, there you will also be. And from that point, we'll never be separated ever again. That was his promise, okay? That he was going to come back and take full possession of what he bought and paid for on Calvary. He's in earnest. 
And by giving us the Holy Spirit to live in our hearts, it was God's way of giving us a pledge, a guarantee, that someday Jesus would return at the rapture. That's what John 14 is talking about. I'm coming back for you to take you to be with me, right? And what he would do when he comes back is going to take full possession of what he has bought and paid for on Calvary's cross. Remember what Jesus said as he hung from the cross just before he bowed his head and dismissed his spirit. As he did that, before he did that, he said, it is finished. It is finished. But in the Greek, he said, to telestai, which could be translated, paid in full. Paid in full. In Colossians 2, verse 14, Paul expresses this when he said that Jesus, by his death, paid for the crimes all the things we, we did to violate God's laws in thought, word, and deed. They were all written on God's ledger, all right? The handwriting of ordinances that was against us is the way Paul put it. God has got a ledger for every person who has ever lived. And in that ledger is written all the sins they've ever committed, all the ways they have violated God's perfect standard. For some people, it's pretty big, Right? But Paul said, when Jesus died in that cross and we received him as our Savior, God, if you would, took the blood of Christ and wrote on, on our ledger across it, paid in full. Paid in full. Which meant, guys, the crimes we had committed against God's law, the Father nailed to the Son's cross, took them out of the way, as Paul put it. He removed them as a basis for our guilt. And that's how he justified us. That's how he declared us justified righteous somebody had to, to pay for those sins those crimes against god jesus did it on calvary's cross paul said it if one man because paul knew people would say well you know you're, how could one man die and and by his death everybody in the world that has ever lived is justified if they want to be saved well paul said well think of it this way how did one man sin condemn everybody adam blew it for everybody i mean come on one human being blew it for the whole human race. The God-man, God become flesh, can't die and redeem the whole human race? Is the idea. Our ledger is now stamped paid in full by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. In other words, the work of redemption is done. It is finished. Now, coming back to what Paul is telling us, guys, as soon as a person believes the gospel and receives Christ as Savior, at that very instant they are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. By saying this, Paul was drawing this analogy from a practice that was very common in his day, something everybody understood. In those days, not too many people could read or write. So a man would have a signet ring made which contained an image of some kind, that he could use to represent his signature. The ring would then be pressed into wax or some other soft substance that would eventually harden and act as his seal. Now, these seals served a number of purposes, but the two main ones, the two main ones that I'll mention were the most common. First of all, a seal spoke of ownership. Ownership. And would have been a very would have been very familiar to Paul's readers. He's writing to the Ephesians, right? And it was very common for a merchant from Ephesus to sail across the Aegean Sea to Greece and uh, find some merchandise that he wanted to sell in his market or his store. 
So he would pay for that merchandise, and then he would take his signet ring, and he would impress, again, some soft substance that would eventually harden and bear his seal. He'd go home then. The cargo, his merchandise, was loaded on a ship, sailed across the Aegean to the port of Ephesus, where he would go down and he would show the shipper his signet ring, match it to the stamp on the merchandise, and they would match up and the merchant, the, the, the shipper, would then give to the man his merchandise. He owned it. It was proof that he had purchased it and he now owned that merchandise. The seal made from the buyer's signet ring spoke of ownership. When you and I received Jesus Christ, the Bible says we became the property of God. In other words, God bought and paid for you and I through the blood of his Son and sealed us with the Holy Spirit, declaring his ownership of us. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6. If you don't know this background, a lot of these scriptures, you're grasping what they're saying, but you're not getting the full impact. Okay. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Paul said, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Here's that down payment again, right? And you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's, which belong to him. We belong to him. We were bought and paid for through the blood of Christ. And God stamped his seal on us, the Holy Spirit, which was his way of guaranteeing, was a down payment that he was going to take full possession someday of what he had bought and paid for on Calvary's cross. The rapture is coming. Now you don't have to turn to this one, but I'll just read it to you. Romans 8, verse 9, Paul said, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to God. He, he, he's not God's property. I mean, every Christian has the Holy Spirit in them, all right? Every Christian. You cannot be a Christian without the Holy Spirit being inside of you. It's God's, uh, God's uh, guarantee. It's his stamp of authenticity that you belong to him. One author said, when the Holy Spirit seals believers, he marks them as God's divine possessions, who from that moment on entirely and eternally belong to him the spirit seal declares the transaction of salvation as divinely official and final end quote it's a finished transaction it's a done deal now the second thing a seal spoke of was security ownership and then security turn to daniel 6 now you remember the context some very wicked men deceived the king into signing a hasty decree because they wanted Daniel thrown into the lion's den. They wanted to get rid of him. They were uh, the king's counselors, and Daniel was always outshining them. So they wanted to get rid of him. And so that's exactly what happened. And um, the king had no choice but to obey the law. And so in Daniel 6, verse 16, we read, So the king gave the command and they brought Daniel and cast him into the den of lions but the king spoke saying to Daniel your God whom you serve 
continually, he will deliver you. I don't think that was much a statement of faith as he was just trying to comfort himself. Okay, You're going to be okay, Daniel. And he, tried, he tried all day to get out of this, find a loophole, couldn't find one in the law of the Medes and the Persians. So, uh, you know, so he's just, uh, you know, he uh, just, Daniel, it's going to be okay, right? Your, your God will deliver you. Okay. Verse 17, Then a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring. You skip down a little farther, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. I love that. That the purpose of Daniel, he was sealed with the king's signet ring, that the purpose concerning Daniel might not be changed. The idea here, guys, was that once the king had sealed the lion's den, no one could break the seal, listen, except someone who was greater than the king. The second thing a seal represented was security. Security. Since God has sealed you in Christ with the Holy Spirit, the moment you put your trust in Jesus, you are absolutely secure. You're secure because to break that seal, it would take somebody greater than God. And since no one is greater than God, you've got nothing to worry about. Now, at this point, there is always a dear saint who thinks that they can still blow it. You, you could bring out all this evidence. You could build an ironclad case for the, the absolute eternal security of a believer in Christ. And there's always going to be some sweet saint who's going to say, but I can still blow it, you know? Yeah, I know, he sealed me, but, but I can still blow it and lose my salvation. And I always say to them, are you greater than God? Are you greater than God? Turn to Romans 8. You know, I, I would imagine Paul got some of these folks uh, come across his path when he was ministering. No matter how hard he tried to convince people that they were secure in Christ, their salvation was secure, there were always people who thought, but they could still blow it and lose their salvation, okay? So here, I, I kind of, I kind of get in my mind's eye that maybe he was really um, either a little exasperated or maybe he's got tongue-in-cheek. I mean, not that this is not true, but he's just, he's going to come up with any possible scenario that a person could point to and say, oh yeah, but but this, because of this I can lose myself. He, think, he comes up with everything he can possibly think of to, to prove our salvation is secure. Look, it's in verse 38. For I am persuaded... That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. He's talking about the union of a believer who is now in Christ. Once you're in Christ, he said, nothing will be, separate you from Christ. In other words, once you're saved, you're saved forever. And of course, to those that say, but I, I still think I can blow it. Are you a created thing? Right? 
nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. If you're a created thing here tonight, then not even you can forfeit your salvation. Not even you can lose it. Now, of course, there are people, we've talked about this, and Jude is going to uh, get into this whole thing where he's dealing with apostates. An apostate is somebody who was never saved, but who thought they were, who professed faith in Christ, and others around them were convinced they were saved, only to at one point reject Christ, reject Christianity, uh, renounce it, walk away from it. Um, that's not losing their salvation. That's just proving they never had it. First John 2.19, many have gone out from us, but they were never really one of us, truly saved. For if they had been one of us, they would have remained with us. But because they have left, renounced the faith, it proves they were never genuine. So John dealt with it. They all dealt with it, okay? But we're talking about losing your salvation as a genuine child of God, genuinely saved. Paul is tell And I don't think Paul could have thought of anything else to throw into that pile, okay? I mean, he's, he's come up with just about anything he could think of that a person would point to and say, but because of this, I could lose my salvation. And they just lumps it in any other created thing. And that covers everything else, all right? Shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Perfect love casts what? Out fear. When you understand God's perfect love toward you and how that is rooted in what Christ did, not in what you and I do, you realize that you're secure. Because for us to perish, Christ would have to perish. That's not going to happen. We'll finish with Jude, verse 24. I love it. Now to him, capital H, right? Now to him, Jesus, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before his presence, before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. I'll just stop there. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling. And the idea is stumbling, falling out of Christ is the idea. We all stumble. Again, let me go back to that illustration of Noah and the ark, okay? The ark is the type of Christ. Noah and his family entered the ark. God closed the door, sealed them inside. As the waters of judgment began to come upon the earth, the ark was lifted up. And in the waves of that judgment water, I'm sure that Noah and his family uh, fell down numerous times in that ark. But they never fell out of the ark and perished, right? In Christ, are you going to stumble and fall sometimes to sin? Yeah. But you'll never stumble out of Christ and perish. I mean, walking closely with the Lord is the goal of our Christian lives. Because the more we clo the closer we draw to Jesus, the less we sin, right? And that's what sanctification really is too. That process of we just get keep drawing closer and closer to God, we get more and more strength, more and more Christ-likeness. Until finally, sin is not really an issue. We'll never be free of it until the rapture when we get our glorified body. But a true Christian should sin less and less, not more and more. Okay? But now unto him who is able to keep you from falling out of Christ, falling out of salvation and being lost, the one who will present you, how? Faultless. Guys, 
if you don't wrap your mind around what the New Testament is saying about our salvation, the devil is going to beat you senseless with condemnation and guilt that you've lost your salvation. There are some poor saints who come to church and get saved every week. Now, not really, but they think they are because their church has told them and taught them that if they don't measure up to some kind of a holy standard, they have lost their salvation and have to repent and get saved all over again. Perfect love casts out fear. You, you, you could never live a, a, a peaceful Christian life thinking that at any moment you could, you could lose your salvation because you didn't measure up. And before you could get to church and pray to receive Christ again, you might get hit by a car, die, and go to hell for eternity. How do you, how do you live with any peace with that theology on your heart? The Bible says once we receive Christ, positionally, we have been placed in Christ and God no longer sees me. My, my sins have been paid for. But as God sees me, I'm in Christ. I am perfect, blameless, holy, righteous, and so on. Positionally. Practically? No. I, I Often none of those things. But that's the goal of sanctification, to, to work, uh, to draw close to God, and uh, as you do, become more righteous practically, more blameless practically. But you're in Christ if you were to die five minutes after you got saved and hadn't had any time to stop smoking, drinking, watching whatever on the internet, it wouldn't matter. You're still in Christ. You're still saved. You're positionally saved. And all the other stuff is just however long you spend on earth, you're growing in grace. Now, what God has started on earth through salvation, he's going to finish on the way up through glorification, through the rapture. Glorification? But whoever has been justified, saved, will be glorified because he's keeping us. He's holding on to us. Uh, you know, so, some people have a theology where, okay, they'll acknowledge that the ark was a type of Christ. But their theology is that Noah was commanded by God to put pegs on the outside of the ark, and him and his family were to grab onto those pegs, and after the flood, when all the water was gone, and if they were still holding on, they made it. That's their view of salvation. You know, like you're hanging on to Christ. You know, and, and, and after it's all said and done, you come to the end of your life, if you're still able to hang on to him, you've made it. I don't see that in my Bible. I see he's hanging on to me, right? John 10, I got you in my hand. Father's got you in his hand. You're not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere. I can still slip between his fingers and get lost. You are his fingers. You're his body, right? But we're faultless, blameless, holy, perfect because of what Christ did. We're in him. And so he will present us before his Father's presence someday with exceeding joy. The one who hung on to us, not you know us who hung on to him. Thank God. My grip isn't very tight. His is almighty tight. He'll never leave me. He'll never lose me. I am secure. Amen? Amen? We'll get into it next week, God willing. We'll start this wonderful, uplifting section on apostates. <laughs> Father, we thank you for the truth you have placed in your word for us to read, understand, meditate on. Give us grace to do that. The devil wants to rob us of the assurance of our salvation and the eternal security of our salvation. 
But give us grace, Lord, to realize it's not about us. This was not a two-party covenant we entered into. Our part, your part, if we're faithful, we're going to make it. No, it was all based on your faithfulness, the promise you made to yourself before the foundation of the world was ever laid. Thank you, Lord, that your promise was made to yourself and to just assure our hearts you gave us a down payment of the Holy Spirit, which is the guarantee that you're going to take full possession someday of what you've already bought and paid for, paid for at Calvary's cross. And when the rapture happens, that's when you're going to take full possession. You're going to give us a full redemption in the sense that our outward man, our physical bodies, will also be redeemed and transformed into glorified bodies. We will jettison the old nature. will never be an issue anymore. We will be as pure and holy outwardly as we are inwardly right now, being in Christ. So, Lord, we ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word as we go through this. This is an important section. I joke around a little bit. It's not very uplifting, but very important that we understand the principles here. Give us grace to do that, Lord. Father, we ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.